We're in chapter 8 of Luke's Gospel. I've handed out my thoughts on Luke chapter 8 that the bishop asked me to produce for the series the conference is doing. And uh, I've divided it up, the chapter up into segments, because it is a long chapter. It's 56 verses. So the first section is the women of faith, which is uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And then the second section is the message of faith shrouded in parables, which is chapter 8, verses 4 through 18. Then we have the stormy sea and legion, which is chapter 8, verses 22 through 39, followed by the two daughters of faith, which is chapter 8, verse 40 through verse 56. So I've divided up into these segments or these sections, which deal with the themes that are contained within each. Notice what I wrote at the top of the page. Chapter 7 closed with Jesus saying to the once marginalized but now forgiven and included woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Remember, this is the woman who was uh, bathing Jesus' feet with her tears, drying the feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with, uh, with ointment uh, in a rather scandalous event. And the Pharisee uh, with whom Jesus was eating in his house uh, questioned him about it. And Jesus essentially gave this parable when he talks about how uh, those who are forgiven much will, will, will be very grateful. Those who are forgiven little aren't. And you essentially think you've been forgiven little. Therefore, that explains why you are not treating me as you should be treating and as she is treating me. For you did not wash my feet as a host should, and she has been washing my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil as you should have, and she has been anointing my feet with oil. And you didn't greet me with a holy kiss as you should have done, and yet she has not stopped kissing my feet. And, and so he essentially um, puts this Pharisee, who, who's Jesus' host, in his place. And, and then finishes by turning to the woman and saying her sins are forgiven her. He, he forgives her sins. Um, in a very powerful statement. And that is where we closed out in chapter 7. Keep in mind that the chapter and verse divisions uh, been, have been added later by later copyists and translators and scholars. Sometimes the chapter divisions are rather inappropriate. Sometimes they're right. And, and this time it works. But, but, but the story it continues. It's not as if we're changing <coughs> subjects, although uh, at first, it might seem as though we are. Actually, there is a unitive theme here. Chapter 7 closed with Jesus saying to the once marginalized, but now forgiven and included woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This theme that faith is saving will be a critical component of chapter 8. And, and, and it really is. It's a very critical component of chapter 8. So let's go ahead and start reading from uh, the gospel, and then we might look at the commentary. Soon afterwards, chapter 8, verse 1, Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. Okay, now at first this seems like a rather innocuous statement, an innocuous paragraph here, but it's actually rather shocking. 
uh, to see it based in part upon the words that Luke uses that may not be evident in translation. In verse 3 it says, And Joanna and his wife, uh, uh, the wife, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. Does anybody have a different word rendering there than provided in verse 3? In verse 3, where it says, who pro these women who provided for them out of their resources. Does anybody have a different translation word there than provided? This one uses. Well, the whole phrase is different. These women were helping to support them out of their own means is the way it is. And this is These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the new international means. Yeah. Helping to support them, which is what's translated provided for them. Helping to support them out of their own means. If you go to the commentary that I wrote, we'll take a look at that. We begin with what is, in its cultural context, must have been a scandalous affirmation. While we are informed that Jesus is accompanied uh, in his itinerant ministry by the twelve, pass this down to Marianne, um, by the twelve, who had been named back in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, remember, uh, here significantly more attention is given to the several women who traveled with him, including Mary Magdalene who was the very first evangelist to proclaim the resurrection. This is at the end of the gospel, of course. These women of faith not only witness the ministry of Jesus, but also participate in it through service from their own resources. The NRSV uses the word provide here to translate the Greek word uh, dekanun, or diakonun, actually, diakonun, which is the verb form of the word from which we derive the English word deacon. In other words, you could theoretically translate this, um, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and Susanna, and many others, who deaconed for them out of their resources. Served with them for them out of their resources. In other words, these women were actively engaged in diaconal, service-oriented servant ministry to, for, and with Jesus. Now this is very important, all right? Because when behind the scenes would be one thing, women engaged in service or assisting, cooking, cleaning, taking care of behind the scenes is one thing, and that's usually how this is interpreted, but that's not how it's written. It's using a very specific word that became very important in the church, especially in the Acts of the Apostles. See my note here. Luke's word choice is not an accident. The importance of the joint ministry of the apostles and the deacons in the life of the church will be expanded upon in the book of Acts. Here we see it hinted at in the nature of the women's ministry as one of witness and service. They will eventually become the first witnesses of the resurrection, and even before the apostles will be the first to express faith in the risen Lord. Again, as we saw in the Beatitudes, it is the ministry with those who are among the marginalized that the kingdom of God may be found. Women were not included in any kind of witnessing role. They might be behind the scenes, namelessly, namelessly serving. Luke doesn't let them go nameless. 
he identifies Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Husa, which means that, you know, she's, she's got some, an inside communication line to Herod's uh, staff. That's rather impressive. And Susanna and many others. So there are more than just these three, but these three are named. Well, that's your first really big shocker. They're named. You don't name women in that ancient culture. I just saw something on Facebook that shocked me. It was a video done by the UN in which they interviewed uh, Muslim men and asked them what their mother's names were, and they all refused to tell them. Because if, you, if, a, if a man admits what his mother's name is, it can be used as an insult to him. Instead of saying he is the son of someone, they will insult him by saying he's the daughter. I mean, he's the son of his mother. Excuse me. Son of not father, but son of the mother. Instead of, instead of saying, uh, a Greg, son of Mayo, they might say, Greg, son of Lona. And that's an insult in Muslim society. To identify the son not with the father but with the mother is an insult. And, 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 and so Muslim men are extremely reticent to give their mother a name. Is that a result of the religion or is that a result of the tradition that is it, uh, basically it, Bedouin? It crosses multiple cultures. You find it not only in Arabic Islam but in Indonesian Islam in Islamic expressions throughout uh, Europe, especially the, including those who are not uh, of Arabic descent. It is apparently religious oriented because it's not just Arabic it, Muslims. You find it in Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country on the planet. And in a, in a society where women were used to be honored before Islam came there, now they are suppressed. And they even showed several who are clearly Indonesian, and they all said, no, I'm not going to tell you my mother's name. It's against the law. It's against Sharia. And, 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 the, and then they finally found out what the reason was. Well, this is reflecting, though, that some of that Semitic attitude, uh, it, it's, it's standing against it. All right. That's what's so amazing about this paragraph. A, the women are named. Women were behind the scenes. They weren't named. Elsewhere where the women are mentioned, sometimes they're mentioned that there are women, but they're not necessarily listed or identified or named with a few exceptions. Here, Luke names them. And he then uses a word that's provided, this, this Greek word, diakunun, deacon, deaconed in the verb form. Uh, that there could there were other words that he could have used, waited on, served. Some of those words are actually used over in the Acts of the Apostles, but he uses specifically a word that highlights a connection between these women in Luke and what the deacons would end up doing in the Acts of the Apostles. Because what did the deacons do? They assisted in distributing the foodstuffs, not just communion, but all of the resources of the community to the people who had need. It was too much work for the apostles to do themselves, and so they set apart deacons to do this work, this ministry work. And they used that term, 
And it's the same term that's used of these women in their assisting Jesus and the disciples. Therefore, uh, you've got two things here. You've got the women named in a society where they would not have been named. And you've got the word used for what they're doing being a word that's closely connected with the office of the deacon in the life of a church. That's huge. That's really huge. It means that women were not only recognized by Jesus as having value, but that even as late as the Gospel of Luke's authorship, women in roles like this were recognized and affirmed. It'd only be later, much later, another 50, 60, 70 years into the second century that women were starting to be suppressed in leadership positions in the church. When Paul was leading the churches that he founded, he would often leave women behind in charge. Chloe is a good example from the First Corinthians letter of a woman in charge. Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila is the male of this uh, evangelistic couple. Priscilla is the woman, and it's always mentioned first because it's, she takes the lead in their min joint ministry together. Jesus, uh, Paul mentions a woman as being first among the apostles in one of his letters. So for him, it wasn't a really big deal, the gender issue. That's why that statement, women keep silent in the church, is so contrary to the, every, everything else that Paul says and how he treats women elsewhere in his letters. Okay. Um, here we find it in, in the time of Luke's gospel, no problem pointing out these women who were in positions of, of, of important service ministry to, with, and for Jesus and the apostles. It's, it's, it's just, it, they're named and the word used are huge. It really can't be overemphasized. Let's keep going. Any questions? Verse 4. When a great crowd gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on the path, and was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As he said this, he called out, let anyone with ears to hear listen. Hmm. Interesting parable. Here we have an example of the parables of Jesus. They are memorable. They're, they are alive, visual. And clearly there's meaning here. Then the disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others I speak in parables, so that looking they may not perceive, and listening they may not understand. Huh? Huh? 
you know, that it it sounds like Jesus doesn't want certain people to hear or to understand. That's I'm not sure I like that. Shouldn't all get to hear and understand? How might we deal with this question? Lack of transparency. Lack of transparency? Well, yeah, maybe. Uh, take a look in my commentary in the big second paragraph uh, after the message of faith shrouded in parables, the second paragraph. With this parable in mind, we turn back to look at the question of the veiled message. The disciples question Jesus about the meaning of the parable, and his response may leave us troubled. To others I speak in parables, so that looking they may not perceive, and listening they may not understand. We may question, why would Jesus wish to hide his message? Doesn't it need to be proclaimed for all to hear? Yes, it does. But ultimately we must admit that hearing, perceiving, and understanding the gospel is, a true, is truly a matter of spiritual comprehension. Not all are either ready or able to receive the good news, and certainly not at any given moment. Only God gets to decide for whom the secrets of the kingdom of God shall come. And as we have and will continue to see, God has decided to give those secrets to those who have faith. Huh. So the parables are articulated specifically to, to test whether or not you're open to receiving them. And if you're not open to receiving the message, you won't. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So let's take a look at this parable. Verse uh, 9. Then is decided, uh, no, excuse me, uh, verse uh, 11. Now the parable is this. So now Jesus is going to explain it. After having said to them, to those who, who are ready to hear and understand, to those who are, are, who are outfitted to hear and believe, they're going to understand it. <laughs> well, the disciples still need to have it explained to them. I feel a little bit better now because I, I often feel like I need to have Jesus explain the parables. Now, they're supposed to be self-explanatory, but they're not. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones on the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe only for a while, and in a time of testing fall away. Wow. Well, we, we know what that's like. As for what, yeah, personally from experience. As for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear... But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Well, we know what that is too, don't we? Hmm. But as for that in the good soil, these are the ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patient endurance. 
Hmm. Now, my commentary is in that first paragraph in the commentary section. The parable of the sower defines faith as hearing, believing, responding, and persevering. Did you hear that? Persevering is the key. <laughs> faith is hearing, believing, responding, and persevering. Anything less isn't faith. <clears throat> to just hear the gospel is good, but it is insufficient. <coughs> One must hear and believe. Hearing and believing, while also good, is also insufficient. If one doesn't respond, if one doesn't put down roots and grow. And even if we do respond, if one does have roots, the challenge is to survive and grow amidst the competing interests of this life. True faith hears, believes, rejoices, responds, and perseveres through the tough times. Jesus' concluding thought about faith bearing fruit with patient endurance challenges me continually. Rarely am I patient and enduring with faith through life's distractions is always difficult. I don't think you're alone. Hmm? I don't think you're alone. No, 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 no. And, and, I, and, and that's, I think, the point, the whole point here. Uh, this is nothing that is new or surprising to any of us. It's an experience we all share. Jesus is not done, however. He's going to amplify what he just said in terms of the importance of faith having not just uh, hearing and believing and, and, and persevering the whole process. It, it, it's more than just that. You've got to hear, you've got to believe, you've got to respond, you've got to persevere, but it, keep it going. No one after lighting a lamp hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. Ooh. And if you think about it, you try to do things that no one knows about. Chances are you're going to get discovered. Mm -hmm. No one lights a lamp. No one, no one sets, sets a, a lamp alight and then hides it. No, it's designed to show forth light to let people see. Then pay attention to how you listen. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who do not have, even what they seem to have will be taken away. That doesn't seem fair. But isn't that reality? Notice, pay attention to how you listen. Verse 19. Then his mother, this is Jesus' mother, then Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Remember what I said? Faith is not just hearing, it's, it's believing, 
it's responding, it's persevering. My brothers and my mother are those who hear the word of God and do it. Well, first that says, boy, that's not very nice. A commentary. This point is then illustrated, this, this point about uh, the whole business of faith uh, being shrouded in parables, faith being hearing and believing and responding and persevering. This point is then illustrated by the appearance of Jesus' mother and siblings. His response might at first seem harsh, but it is in keeping with the essence of the message. Those who hear the word of God and do it. In other words, those who have active faith are Jesus' family. In this way, Luke is telling the church that they are the family of God. Interesting. So we have here a parable, a very famous parable, parable of the sower. <clears throat> and most people will attempt to say, well, that means that you, you're one kind of seed, and you're a bad seed, or you, you fell into rocks or into thorns, and you're naughty and bad. When in reality, it's more like we're in various places at different times in various places and times in our lives. So it sometimes we'll be in good deep soil where we can grow. But other times we'll find ourselves being choked off by thorns. Sometimes they're thorns of our own creation. <laughs> Frequently they're thorns of our own creation. Um, we throw ourselves into the thorns. Um, we we don't listen. We don't listen deeply, or we don't listen at all. Uh, we we can easily be distracted. We can easily have the word snatched away from us by what's going on. So it's not a static picture. Likewise, hearing and then believing. And, and or not hearing and therefore not believing, having the parable shrouded is also not a static picture. Where we are at any given moment, it's not that some people will never hear and believe, it's that wherever they are at that particular moment, they're not able to hear and believe. And it is only the combination of hearing, believing, responding, and persevering that has an impact on your life, a lasting impact, a real impact on your life. Hence the purpose for the parables. It, it, um, it allows you to find your place at different points in your life in different points in the story. And that's true for other of Jesus' parables. The parable of the prodigal son. A lot of people want to roost on the parable of the prodigal son with the prodigal, the, the, the boy who goes away, spends all of his dad's money and then has to come back. But frequently, frequently people equate themselves or see, I see myself so frequently as the older son who stayed home and gets bitter and upset that dad is wasting all of the, wasting the, the fatted calf and and, and the party on that wayward son who went away and now has returned. And I get, you know, it, it's easy to get that way. And who was estranged from the father? Well, the, the older son was just as estranged from the father as the younger son, even though he was right there. 
We all know that story. And at times you can be a prodigal, and the other times you can be the older son. It's also possible in, this, in that story to be the father, just giving thanks and praise that the lost boy is coming home. Now I've got to go out and gather in the, the boy who stayed home but now is lost to me. And he does. He goes out to the older son and tries to get him to come in and welcomes him in. It's, it's a powerful, that parable is one of the most powerful parables Jesus preached because it applies so many different ways. The same is true for the parable of the sower. It applies in so many different ways. But not only individually. No. It applies collectively as well. Oh, absolutely. That's its strength. It's a multi parables are multi have a multiplier effect in that they apply individually, they apply to communities, they apply to, apply to, to groups in multiple settings. It's one, and they're memorable. That's a good thing. They're easy to remember. You might, you will probably, I will, I will probably remember very little, if anything, of that sermon six weeks from now. But that story of the four jars, four glasses, and the worms, you, you, didn't, you didn't hear it. No, I'm going to have to go when Bonnie puts this on the line. I'm going to A preacher is preaching, and he, he starts his sermon by taking four glasses. And one glass has whiskey in it. The next, second glass has uh, tobacco in it. The third glass has chocolate in it. And the fourth glass has soil in soil. it. Uh, and, he, and he takes four worms. He puts one worm in the glass with the whiskey, one worm in the glass with the tobacco, one worm in the glass with the chocolate, one worm in the glass with the soil, and covers them, and then preaches his sermon. At the end of his sermon, he uncovers them, and the worm found the worm that he put into the glass with the whiskey is, of course, dead. Mm -hmm. The worm that he put in the in the glass with the tobacco is, of course, dead. The worm that he puts in the chocolate is fat. No, he's dead. <laughs> and and the and the worm that he put in the soil is, of course, alive. And then he asks the congregation, "Okay, what does this mean?" And a little old lady sits, stands up in the back of the sanctuary and says, "It means that if you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms." <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I wish I knew where I got that one from. I've, I've gone online and looked it up, and I found it in several different places. I, that's one of those that you know I just heard somewhere, and it is stuck with me. It works. It's hilarious, and it can be used in many different ways. Because in truth, you know, he was he was placing those worms places they ought not to be. She was rationalizing. Yeah. She was rationalizing. But it's hilarious. But it it fits and it sticks. Mm -hmm. I must have heard that ten or more years. In fact, I know it was because I, I double checked, and sure enough, in 2006, the last time I preached that particular passage that I preached on this last Sunday was in 2006. I went back and listened to the sermon, and lo and behold, I used the illustration. I'd forgotten that I, and I, I preached the message very differently, but I used the same illustration. There's something about that passage that caused that illustration to come to me. And it repeated itself, that sense, repeated, it repeated, well, elements of the sermon were the same, but how I did it was very different. 
and, but I used the story. And you remember the punchline? Oh, I remember the punchline. I don't have trouble with the punchline. Oh, you're much younger. Well, no, well it, it, I don't know. It just flows. Sometimes I, I forget punchlines, but not that one. You won't have worms. Yeah, wow. Well, we've reached a good stopping point, so we'll go ahead and pull it to a close so we can not be all that terribly rushed getting ready for the service. But, um, you know, that's the, that parable, that parable of the sower is very powerful. And you read it again, if you read it repeatedly. And then, and then read also that next one about the light. Read that too. Think about it. What, where are you at this given moment, at any given moment? What kind of soil? What is your circumstance? Are you able to hear and believe but have trouble responding? Can you hear and believe and respond but have trouble persevering? So frequently that's my issue. Mm -hmm. Because there are lots of competing interests that get in the way of holding faith fast. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.